we've been sharing on the subject, talking really about trying to just reveal the true nature of God. What is God really like? And as I've said before, this is so important because I believe that we've gotten misinformation about God. And as a result, it's given us an impression of God that is not really attractive. Most people uh, serve God because they know they need to. They're fearful of what happened if they don't, but very few people have really pushed into a love relationship with God, and it comes because of misunderstanding of certain things in the Word of God. And as I mentioned last night, Satan will take the Word of God and even twist the Word of God and try and discredit God and, and give you a wrong impression of him. And so this is what we've been trying to do, is to go back and basically establish that God is love. There's things in the Word of God that doesn't look like God is love. There's harshness, wrath, punishment, etc., especially, mainly, under the Old Testament law. There was a period of time where the first 2,000 years of God's dealings with mankind that he did not impute their sins unto them, according to Romans chapter 5, verse 13. He didn't hold their sins against them, and he was dealing with mankind in mercy and grace. And that right there is a revolutionary thought to a lot of people because they thought immediately God just severed man from his presence at the point of sin, and it really revealed the true nature and character of God. He really was half ticked off anyway, and man, when we sinned, you know, God just really let us have it. But no, that isn't a true picture of God. He's long-suffering, and he's, he's uh, merciful. And when he gave wrath and punishment upon sin, it wasn't because that was really what he wanted to do. And it's evidenced by the fact that he waited for over 2,000 years. It, according to Galatians chapter 3, was only a temporary measure that God put in place until faith could come into full force through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Galatians chapter 3 says that once that faith has come, we're no longer under the law. We no longer serve God through the law. So the law was only a temporary thing. Most Christians today did not make it a temporary thing. They have made it a permanent thing. Most Christians are still trying to serve God under the law. And according to Galatians 3.12, a law is not a faith. Romans 14.23 says whatsoever is not a faith is sin. You put those two scriptures together, and for a New Testament believer, it's sin to try and serve God by perfecting and keeping the Old Testament law. That was not really the purpose of the Old Testament law. The real purpose of the Old Testament law wasn't to give you a standard of keeping so that you could earn relationship with God, earn the blessings of God, and that's what most people think, but rather the real purpose of the Old Testament law was to show you God's standard is so perfect, so holy, so far beyond what you could ever fulfill that it would let you see that there is no self-salvation. You cannot earn anything from God, and it would make you turn away from trusting in yourself and put all of your attention upon God. That was the real purpose of the law. The law was not intended to give life. The law was intended to give death. The law was not intended to bring righteousness, but rather condemnation and damnation, and that is exactly the purpose of the law, as we've already read in a lot of scriptures. The law was not intended to be a life-producing thing. Rather, it was intended to drag you down. It made, con it made you conscious of your sin. And even though that isn't really what a purpose that God had, he didn't want that, or otherwise he could have communicated the law to Adam and Eve. He finally gave the law because we had become so self-deceived, we weren't recognizing the deadliness of sin, that mankind was just running headlong with sin, and sin was destroying the human race. And so God had to give us a knowledge of sin because it did let us recognize the deadliness of sin, it made us turn away from it, and it also made us throw ourselves on God for mercy. So those things were productive, but the other things that the law did were detrimental, and that is it gave you guilt, according to Romans 3.19. It gave you a knowledge of sin. 
It produced death and condemnation according to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 8 and 10. It was the strength of sin. It actually strengthened sin according to Romans chapter 7. It actually caused sin to revive on the inside of you and killed you. And so anyway, as we've explained this, the reason that this ministers to me so much is because it shows me, in the Old Testament, it shows me the dealings of God and the harshness and some of the severity, that was not really characteristic of God. That is not really the nature of God. Now, God is just and holy, and there is coming a punishment, and heaven is real and hell is real. And God is certainly not unjust to take judgment upon us, okay? And let me throw one other thing in. I had somebody ask me about this, and boy, I tell you, we could minister on this, and I could answer questions for weeks on just things that the Lord has shown me about this, but I'd like to throw this in because I know a lot of you have had questions. If the first 2,000 years were basically God dealing in grace, what about the flood of Noah and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah? That doesn't look like it's grace and mercy. Well, it really wasn't grace and mercy on those people, but it was grace and mercy on the uh, creation of God as a whole. And it was an isolated event. You see, according to the law that's later revealed, that Abraham was worthy of being stoned to death because he married a half-sister, which according to Leviticus, I believe it's chapter 17, that's equal to incest. Uh, many things. Abraham, the way he treated Sarah and denied that he, she was his wife so that he could save his own skin. He was worthy of judgment right there. Jacob was a rascal. Jacob was, he did a lot of rotten stuff. All of those guys committed polygamy, which never was God's will, but see, he didn't reveal his uh, sin against it. So by and large, God dealt with, with people in mercy. And I believe that you can even look at the flood and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and see mercy in that, too. Not mercy upon the people, uh, the individuals that got judged, but the whole wor world, as a result, was benefited by it because the Bible says that in the days of Noah, things had become so corrupt that Jesus said in the end times, that right before the coming of the Son of Man, that things would again approach to being as bad as they were in the days of Noah. Now, Noah was only 2,000 years after the fall of Adam, and we're approximately 6,000 years, isn't that right? Somewhere around there, after the fall of Adam. And uh, things are just now getting back to where they were 2,000 years after the fall of Adam. Things went so bad, they went so corrupt in a short period of time, and yet now there's been a 4,000, twice as long, and it's just now beginning to approach back to the same levels of uh, sin and perversion as it was then. See, there was something that came in that restrained sin, and that was the Old Testament law. But things had gotten so bad in the days of Noah that if God had not have dealt with all of that sin, there literally wouldn't have been a virgin left for the Lord Jesus to bring, I mean, for God to bring the Lord Jesus into this earth through. If you read things, and I've read history accounts of what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah, and I tell you, it was perverse, and it was just totally bonded. So it's kind of like a cancer. And even though it was severe on the people in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah in the days of the flood, Yet, it was like cutting out a cancer. It was very severe on those people, but for the human race as a whole, it actually was a step of mercy. So what I'm saying is, yes, there was some manifestation of wrath. Yes, God is just and holy, but by and large, God wasn't dealing with man according to their sins and imputing their sins unto them. Now, in the New Covenant, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says that through Christ, God was in Christ Jesus reconciling the world unto himself. The word reconcile means to make friendly again not imputing man's trespasses unto him. Through the ministry that Jesus brought in through the new covenant, God once again is not imputing man's trespasses unto them. 
Anybody who will make Jesus Christ their Lord comes back into a situation where even though you may be doing things that aren't pleasing to God, God is dealing with you under a covenant of mercy and grace instead of a covenant of damnation and punishment. The Old Testament law was not a positive thing, and there's many scriptures. I've used a few of them, but the Old Testament law was contrary to us, is what it says in Colossians chapter 2. It was against us. It says in uh, Galatians chapter 2 that if we try and please God by the Old Testament law, we frustrate the grace of God. We can make vain, void the uh, atonement of God. In Galatians chapter 5, he says, if you're seeking to be justified by the works of the law, by circumcision, then Christ has become of none effect unto you. You're fallen from grace. You know, there's a scripture in 1 Peter chapter 5 that says that God resists the proud but gives grace unto the humble. You know, grace is God's unmerited favor. Grace is what we should be operating under. Have you all ever had somebody bless you? I mean, somebody gives you a large sum of money or something just begins to fall in place and all of a sudden you see the blessings of God just really work and, and have you ever turned around and says, I wonder what I did to, to deserve this? Any of you ever thought that way? I mean, that's the way human nature usually thinks. We turn around and say, what did I do? And we try and go back and follow all of our steps that we've taken and wonder what it was that we got God to perform this time. Well, that reveals something to us. We actually believe that we're getting only what we deserve. And that's just not grace. Grace is unmerited favor. And if you'd humble yourself, instead of being self-willed and thinking, man, I can obtain through God, through my great holiness and through my church attendance, through all of the things that we do, if we would just humble ourselves before God and say, God, I, I come before you based totally on what the Lord Jesus has done for me, if you do that, that's humbling yourself and God makes grace abound towards you in that type of situation. Amen? And that's what we need is the grace of God, not the judgment and the punishment of God. Now, through the grace of God, God has dealt with our sins. And see, the Old Testament showed you sin. We've already dealt with that out of Romans 3, 19, 20, many other places. The Old Testament showed you sin, but the Old Testament never could show you forgiveness. The Old Testament did not magnify forgiveness. Instead, it magnified sin, and it actually made you sin conscious. It made you self-conscious. And Johnny gave a, a scripture tonight, Philemon, verse 6. It says, The communication of your faith becomes effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. We've developed a mentality that the way you really get close to God and the way you really get the power of God working in you is by start acknowledging all of the sorry, rotten things that are inside of you that are causing you problems. And when you get sick enough of yourself, when you really get to see in yourself, you begin to die to yourself. And uh, I've got to be careful here because the scripture does talk about dying to yourself. I preach on dying to yourself. There is a Bible truth about it, but what most, of we, most of what we've heard about it isn't Bible truth. The way you die to yourself is not by getting your attention on yourself. Rather, it's getting your attention off of yourself onto somebody else, becoming totally consumed with them, not totally consumed with yourself. I think I may have given this example before, but you know, uh, when Jamie and I were engaged and getting ready to get married, I had said that I'd be the Apostle Paul. I was never going to get married. And I was pouring cement for a living. And these guys that I worked with were constantly razzing me because I'd told them I'd never said a cuss word in all my life, never taken a drink of liquor, never smoked a cigarette. And I was witnessing to them and telling them about things, and they just believed that I was lying. They really didn't believe that you could live that way. And so they were constantly probing me, trying to get me mad at them, trying to get me to cuss, trying to get me. They'd drink and try and give me a drink, and they'd do all of these things. 
And they were just constantly razzing me. And when they found out I was engaged, they knew they had me then. They knew that, man, I just couldn't contain myself, that I wouldn't be holy, that we would do something wrong. So every morning when I came to work, they'd be on my case about what did you do last night, what went on. And they kidded me. They called it Licky Face. They said, you've been out playing Licky Face all night long. <laughs> and they just harassed me all of the time. And so anyway, I was embarrassed about this. And so I, I just tried to ignore them. And the way I dealt with this was I wouldn't even acknowledge in front of them anything about Jamie. I wouldn't talk about her. I didn't do anything. And one day, I was uh, trowelling cement on a bay window, and that water was coming up off that cement. And as I was trowelling this cement, I was looking in that water, and I saw my reflection there, and I was thinking about Jamie. And before I knew it, did you know I was so... I had my mind so stayed on Jamie, thinking about her, that I was saying out loud, said, Jamie, I love you. And I was just looking in this reflection, trowling that water and saying, Jamie, I love you. And all of a sudden, I came to my senses and recognized there wasn't only my reflection in this water, but there was these other reflections round about me. And all of these guys that had been harassing me for so long were sitting there just laughing and carrying on. Boy, they got me. But, you know, the point that I'm making is I never would have... Uh, I would have controlled myself. I never would have said anything like that in front of them, except that I, was, I had my mind so off of me and so off of what, you know, I was doing and off of these people, and I was just so single-minded on Jamie that I literally forgot myself. See, love will cause you to do that. Love will cause you to literally think about somebody else more than you think about yourself. You know, a person that becomes a hero when they go in and rescue somebody from a burning building or I remember some of these people there was a plane crash in Washington DC in the dead of winter and uh, people were drowning and and some of the spectators began to jump into this frozen water and they rescued people and some of the people who tried to rescue them got killed themselves but one of the persons who was a hero saved somebody else's life and lived through it they were interviewing them and said didn't you think about yourself and about what was going to happen to you and didn't you think about your family and about your kids and the person said, no, I, I never even thought about myself. All I could think about were people inside of there that were dying. And see, that's the reason that you can have boldness. A person that sat down and thought about themselves and said, man, have I got my insurance premium paid? Is my family taken care of? What, what's going to happen to my family? You know, maybe they've got a family, but I've got a family. A person like that, you won't go ahead and risk your life. It's only when you get caught up and your mind is so stayed on somebody else that you forget yourself that you wind up being bold. See, that's what God's kind of love is. God's kind of love is not self-seeking. And we can spend a lot of time talking about that. So the key to getting free from self is not by focusing attention on self, but rather putting all of your attention on the Lord Jesus. And the teaching that I had about dying to self, see, told me that the way I died to self was to make a sin list. When I was first told about the baptism of the Holy Ghost, the way they wanted me to receive it was to make a sin list. They'd give you a piece of paper and write down every sin you've ever committed. And I filled that up, turned it over and filled it up and asked for another sheet of paper. I was still going when everybody else quit. Some of you may wonder, how come you had so many sins? Because I had so much knowledge of the law, I was more in tune to what sin was than some other people that had been out living in adultery. They just wrote down adultery and some things like that. Man, I listed every rotten thing I'd ever done. I was very in tune with all of the sorry things in my life. And did you know all I did was make me more sin conscious? That didn't help get me free of self. That The thinking was you'd get so sick of self that you couldn't stand it anymore and you'd turn it all over to Jesus. But the Bible says as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. If all you think on is yourself, you're going to be full of self. 
And I mean, I tried. I even heard a guy one time talk about crucifying the flesh, and he said he imagined getting up and strapping himself in an electric chair every morning and then pulling the switch. And, you know, I used to do that. I'd sit in the chair first thing in the morning. I'd sit down and say, Father, i got to die to myself. And I'd see myself strapping it in. Pride, man. I'd, as I strapped myself in, I'd name all these rotten things. Pride and, and jealousy and wrath. And I'd just strap myself in and then pull the switch and just see myself dying. You know what that did? That made me so conscious of all the sorry, rotten things on the inside of me. I was depressed all the rest of the day. I wasn't dead to self. I was totally full of self through the teaching about dying to self. And if you'd ever notice, these people that go around and they say, Well, brother, I'm just nothing. I'm a worm. I'm dying to myself. Praise God. And they go around like that. Did you know those people don't look like they've got any joy? They don't look like they're radiating the joy of the Lord. That's not being dead to self. That's alive to self. Religion has taught us that knocking self down and thinking self is no good and focusing on all of the sin in self, religion's taught us that's good. That's the way it's supposed to be. But did you know that you can be very full of pride by being full of how sorry you are? Did you know the people that, are, that operate in the most pride are not the arrogant people that we talk about, but the most proud people are very shy, timid people. A shy, timid person, you know why they're shy? You know why they won't open up? Because they are so self-conscious. They've been hurt or something, and they just can't get their mind off of themselves. You take a little kid, and you know a little kid can start dancing and praising God. They don't care because they don't care what anybody thinks about them. You've got to be carefully taught to become as self-conscious as what we are. We learn to be so restrictive, and it's because we are self-conscious. Shy, timid people are a lot more arrogant, are a lot more prideful than a person that goes around thinking they're superior to everybody else. Amen or oh me. See, there's some of you that have thought, well, one thing I hadn't got is a pride problem. Man, I think I'm the scum of the earth. I don't think I'm... I don't have a problem with pride. A person that goes around thinking that you're no good has a pride problem. Because, see, you're still wrapped up in yourself. You've never got out of yourself and into Christ Jesus and who you are in Christ Jesus. That's not being dead to self. That's being alive to self. And religion has taught us a false dying to self that actually makes us more self-centered. Philemon, verse 6, says, The way that you make your faith effectual is by acknowledging the good things that are in you Christ, in Christ Jesus. The real way to be free from self is to get so full of Jesus, keep your mind so stayed on Jesus that you literally forget who you are. You forget about yourself. You literally lose yourself in Christ Jesus. That's the scripture way of being dead to self. And very few people have done that. Why? Because the law gave you a knowledge of self, gave you a knowledge of sin. It focused your attention on yourself, not on God, not on his goodness, not on his love, not on his mercy, but rather on your sin, your sorriness. It brought sin and death to life in you, and it just made you so self-conscious. And did you know this is where most religion is today? If I was to ask you tonight, I said, how many of you believe that God heals? Most of you in this type of a group would, amen, brother, we believe in healing. If I was to tell you I've seen people raised from the dead, do you believe that? Most of well, brother, I believe it. I believe it. Man, you'd fight for the fact that God heals. But then if somebody came up here for prayer and if I laid hands on them, they fell over dead. And I said, how many of you believe God's going to heal this person? There's a lot of you. Amen, brother. But then if I said, all right, you come up here and lay hands on them. Boy, there's where the rubber meets the road, right? 
that's where you'd fall. You don't doubt that God can do it. You, some of you don't even doubt that I could do it. But boy, when it comes to you laying hands on the sick and seeing them recover, that's where you doubt. Why? Because you are so conscious of your sin, your failure, that you can't get your eyes on Jesus and what he's done on the inside of you for looking at yourself. And that happened through the knowledge of the law. The law is what made you self-centered. The law is what focused your attention upon yourself. That was a negative outcome. The law didn't show you God. It didn't show you his mercy, his greatness, his goodness, his kindness. Rather, it showed you your rottenness. If you, are, if you are bound by thinking that, man, I've got to do this and this and this. And when I'm saying law, I'm not just talking about the Ten Commandments. I'm not talking about a system of blood sacrifices. We've got our own spirit-filled traditions that if you don't pray in tongues an hour a day, God won't bless you. An attitude like that's law. God will bless you whether you pray in tongues an hour a day or not. Now, if you pray in tongues, it'll help you to receive those blessings of God, but it doesn't earn you anything with God. Going to church will help you to receive the things of God. I praise God for those of you who came out tonight and have a desire to come and hear the word of God. I guarantee you it'll help you. It'll help activate what's on the inside of you, but it's not impressing God. God's not going to give you extra pull or sway or answer a prayer because you came to church tonight. God's already given you everything. God can't give you any more than what he's got. He's already blessed you with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Coming to church is so that we can edify one another, not so that we can earn something from God. Studying the Word does not earn you extra leverage with God, but studying the Word shows you the truth. It helps you to renew your mind and draw out of you what God's already placed on the inside of you. Amen? So those things are good, but some people have taken the good things and instead of seeing that these things are simply discipline upon me to help me, to change me, they've misunderstood and thought this is what God demands for me to be blessed. And they have made this their New Testament law. I've got to do this. I've got to submit to the church. I've got to have this attitude. I've got to do all of these things. I've got to pay my tithes. And unless I do these things, God won't bless me. I want you to know God will bless you whether you pay your tithes or not. It usually goes over about like that. <laughs> Well, I hadn't got time to explain that. I got a tape entitled The Tithe. I'm not against the tithe, but I'm against doing it out of bondage. You're supposed to give not grudgingly or of necessity. You know what necessity means? It means like it's a debt. Like you're robbing God if you don't do it. Well, I opened up a whole can of worms. I wish I hadn't said that because some of you are thinking about that. I'm going to have to just real briefly. You need to get this tape. But the tithe is not just an Old Testament law principle. The tithe is a Bible principle. It was in effect before the Old Testament law was given. Abraham paid tithes. So tithe is a Bible principle. It was in the Word of God before the Old Testament law was instituted. Tithing was not done away with. But under the Old Covenant, there was a curse placed upon tithing. Malachi chapter 3, verses 8, 9, and 10, the scriptures that we hear lots of times used for tithing, where it says, Well, a man robbed God, yet ye have robbed me. Wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and in offerings. Bring ye all the tithes in. You are cursed with the curse. And then he says, Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord, if there... I uh, forgot exactly how it goes. But anyway, he'll open up the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing which you shall not have room enough to receive. So those scriptures say that we rob God and then it places a curse on you for robbing God. The Bible says that we've been redeemed from the curse of the law. Tithing is not a part of the law. Tithing was still in effect during the days of the law, but it was in effect before the law. But the curse, the bondage, the giving out of debt and obligation to God is a part of Old Testament law. And the New Testament expressly says 
in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, I believe it's verse 7, it says that when you give, let every man give as he purposeth in his own heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, necessity like debt, like you're robbing God if you don't give, for God loves a cheerful giver. It also says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that if you give all of your goods to feed the poor and if you give your body to be burned and don't do it out of the motivation of love, it profits you nothing. If you've been tithing because, God, here's my tithe. I'm not a God robber. God, here's my tithe. You demanded it on me and bless God. Here it is. If you did that, you may have paid your tithe every time the bucket comes by and it has never profited you one thing. You'll stand before God and have all that money just totally wasted. It didn't earn you a thing with God. If you're giving it to say, God, I'm obeying your command. Bless God, I'm doing it because you commanded it instead of doing it as you purposed in your heart, saying, Father, I love you, and I'd give you everything if I could think of a way to pay my bills and still put all of it in the plate. But God, I want to give this. If you're giving it with any other motive behind that, it profits you nothing is what the Scripture says. And that's the reason that a lot of people have been bucket plunkers all of these years, and they have never received a return on their giving because they didn't do it with the New Testament attitude of grace and love. They've done it out of necessity and debt. And there's some of you that instead of you being God robbers, Satan has robbed you because your attitude never has been the New Testament attitude of love. So I still believe in 10%. It's a standard God gave. We didn't know what God expected. Maybe somebody would have started preaching you had to give 90%. So no, I believe 10% is fine. I believe in tithing, but I don't believe in doing it out of grudging, grudgingly or of necessity. I don't believe you do it to manipulate God and to buy God's blessings. And also, if you're going to go by Malachi chapter 3, verse 8, it says that you didn't only rob him in tithes, but also in offerings. Most people miss that. Did you know if you look up the Old Testament offerings, I heard a man one time that said he went through and figured out the first fruit offering and the first of your flock offerings and all of these things, and he said that according to what he could figure out, 33% of your total income was tithes and offerings. Now, if you're going to live under Malachi chapter 3, verse 8, to keep from living under the curse, you've got to give at least 30% or you're cursed with the curse. Man, you better crawl out from under that Old Testament law before it consumes you. What's well, amazing how we pick and choose and use what... You know why we use that? There's well-meaning people that know that giving works. They know it's like planting seed and God blesses it back. But instead of telling people to do it motivated out of love, ministers, and I've, I've done this. I remember in my church when I first got turned on to the Lord, I got to, every time anybody got turned on, they always ask you to give a, a tithing testimony or something, you know, during their stewardship program. And so I remember that they asked me to give a tithing testimony because I've tithed, I mean, since I was a little tiny kid. I've always given. So they asked me to give a tithing testimony. A man got up and began to talk about just giving motivated out of love. And he stood up, and man, I turned over to Malachi chapter 3 and began to preach you sorry things. Yeah, you should get out of love, but if you don't give, I guarantee you're robbing God and you're cursed with the curse. I preached this exact thing, and my motive was right. I wanted people to give because I know giving works. I've been around. I, I could give you testimony after testimony of it. So I was trying to motivate people to do the right thing, but did you know it's easier to condemn people into it? If I was going to do it tonight, I could take Malachi chapter 3 and I could take some other things and I could make you feel like the biggest heel in the world. I could play on your sympathies. I could tell you if you don't give, we're going to go off the radio and I could tell you all these kind of problems. 
I can tell you some things that happened this summer that, man, people would just yell at. Jerry was sharing with me over supper tonight that when he went off radio, people came up and said, if I'd have known you needed money, you know, I'd have given, I'd have paid your bill. You can, you know, if you just shared some of the things going on, man, you could draw finances out of people, and this is what a lot of people are doing today. You get letters every other week, and you know what they're doing? They're drawing it out of you through two motivations. One of them is sympathy and pity. Now, the Scripture does say that if you see your brother in need and shut up your bowels of compassion, how dwelleth the love of God in you? So that is one motivation for giving. When you see somebody that has need, and man, you just harden yourself towards it, you know, most people won't do that. Most people are compelled to give out of sympathy and out of pity. Another motivation is fear, like you're going to be cursed with the curse. God's going to get you if you don't give. Those two motivations are the easiest to spark in a person. They're the quickest. But you know the superior motivation is to give not grudgingly or of necessity, but give simply as your purpose in your own heart. But that takes a lot of integrity, not only on the person taking up the offering, but that takes a lot of integrity on the people giving it. That's the better way, because see, once you have, like our ministry, we don't push or pull for finances. We give all of our tapes away. We give everything we do away. We tell people, if you don't have it, just write in and give anyway. And you know, we've never sent out appeal letters. We don't ask people for finances. We don't do those kind of things. And as a result, did you know I didn't do anything to cause the response that we've got going, and I don't have to do anything to keep it going. And there is freedom in it. It's hard. I guarantee you we've gone through some hard times, but I can tell you what. I can tell you that tomorrow that the, that the finances are going to continue to flow because I haven't done anything to generate it. If you start with appeal letters, you're going to have to stick with appeal letters because you're teaching the people that if I need money, I'm going to ask for it. And those people get conditioned to give only where they're begged instead of where they're fed. And the scripture says you should give, not grudgingly or of necessity, but if somebody ministers to you spiritual things, you should give back carnal things, financial things. That should be the number one motivation. People are always saying, pray and ask God to tell you what you're supposed to give in this offering. Well, that does happen that way. God has told me down to the exact penny, and I've seen it be a miracle, and those things work. But did you know that that's not the normal way of giving? The normal way of giving is not saying, God, what do you want me to give? What would you think if my kids, you know, every time I, I grabbed them every time they walked by and said, tell me you love me. And if every time I said that, they just turned around and said, I love you, and then walked on. I mean, if the only time they said that they loved me or showed affection was when I demanded it of them or told them, now, you tell me that you love me. I want this of you. Give it to me. You know, one thing about love is you want people to do it spontaneously, not because it's been dictated to them. Did you know God said that we shouldn't be giving just because it is asked of us, because we see a need, because it's pressured, or any of those things, not because we pray and say, God, what do you want me to give? But you know, you ought to just give out of the generosity of your heart, not based on what God has told you. Now, sometimes God will tell you, I'm not ruling that out, but I'm saying that is not the normal way. The normal way to give is just give because you love God, and man, you want to give. You're going to give as much as you can possibly get by with giving. That should be the way to give. And once you establish that, did you know that you don't have to push or pull to get money from people like that? It's harder. It takes a lot more faith, but I guarantee you the results is much better. That's God's method. The reason most people resort to condemning and beating you is because most people are hard-hearted themselves and you respond to condemnation better than you respond to love at first. 
And those people themselves are carnal, and so rather than going about it God's way, they'll just go about it the simplest, quickest way, not realizing that they're digging a hole and that they're putting themselves in it, and that if they push and pull one time, they're going to have to push and pull a little harder next time, and they're digging a hole for themselves. And a lot of these ministries today that men are coming across, oh, we're in financial bondage, and man, if you don't give, something's wrong. I'm not saying that they aren't doing what God told them, but they aren't using the wisdom that God gave them, or I guarantee you it wouldn't have to be that way. Where God guides, he provides. I don't even know why I got off on that, but that's good. It's an example, see, of law and grace. We've even been in our finances. We've been, the church has been manipulating the body of Christ through law instead of through grace because the ministers, most of them are carnal themselves. How can you use a spiritual force when you are carnal? I mean, you come right down to it, it takes a lot of faith to get up and just say, look, no pressure, no pressure. Everybody give as you purpose in your own heart. You can exhort them and tell them, man, God will bless it back, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I mean, if you didn't put a little hook in there somewhere, a little jab somewhere, most ministers couldn't do it because they don't have faith. Don't shout me down just because I'm preaching real good, amen. <laughs> That's the truth. I had not got an axe to grind with anybody. I'm just, I'm just sick and tired of being pressured into, you know, I heard you Smith, I don't know if any of you know you Smith, but he's a friend of mine, he was at one of our camp meetings, and he was talking about the way we received our offerings and stuff, and he got up and just exhorted the people, he says, don't abuse the fact that Andy's not pressuring you for offerings and not give anything, he says, I happen to know that this camp meeting is like $10,000 in arrear, and he needs your offering, and he just encouraged the people to give. But anyway, he says, some of you think it doesn't matter where I give. Some of you are giving in an old dead church that's not even meeting your needs, and you're just giving out of a formality. And you're paying your tithes because, you know, it doesn't really matter where it goes. God sees your heart. And, he's, and you, Smith, are saying, you know, you'd make a lousy farmer to think that you'd get the same crop putting your seed in the middle of an asphalt parking lot that you'd get as planted in <laughs> fertile ground. He says that's not the way it works. He says it, it, everything depends on where you plant it. He says where you give is going to determine your response. And he says not only that, but if somebody gets up and pushes and pulls for money, like I've been in services where they locked the doors, made somebody stand by the doors, and this wasn't a joke, and they said, God, show me there was 15 people in here are going to give $1,000. says, I got all night, and they folded their arms and says, how many of you are going to do that? And one of my friends, who's the president of a bank, he gave $1,000 just to get this guy to shut up and sit down. And I'm convinced that the majority of people did it for that reason. You know what he did? That's just like saying, buddy, it worked. I'm going to reward you for this carnal, devilish way of raising money, and I'm going to bless you for it, and I'm going to give my money to you. And you know what you did? You told that guy it worked. If you need it, do it again. You're encouraging him in it. You know, if the body of Christ would wake up and recognize that just because a minister is standing up here that that doesn't mean everything he's doing is right. And if you'd begin to use some spiritual discernment and get in the Word of God, and if you'd begin to give, not where you're begged and not where you're pushed and pulled from, but if you'd give where you were fed, you know what would happen? Those people that aren't feeding you and are just using you to suck everything good out of you and pad their own pocket, and there's a lot of that being done, those people would be starved out. And the people that were preaching the Word of God would have such an abundance that they'd be like the Old Testament. They'd come along and say, don't give anymore. We can't handle it. We hadn't got room enough to receive it. They did that in the Old Testament. They had to restrain the people from giving. Now, how many churches have you ever been in that restrained the people from giving? 
You know, I was in a church where I had to restrain the people from giving because we couldn't use it. Our vision wasn't big enough, and I had to tell the people we can't use anymore. We had thousands of dollars in there, and our total bills for a month were $15. <laughs> and we had thousands of dollars. I was giving money away to everybody in town. We were preaching the gospel on the radio. I was doing everything I knew to do, and we didn't need anymore. That was a fault with me. Since then, my vision's big. Amen. <laughs> I don't believe you could outgive my vision anymore. <laughs> but I'm saying that it did happen. And people gave out of love. People gave out of love. And boy, it was so neat. It was so neat. We had a coffee can that sat on the piano with a hole cut in the lid. We had thousands of dollars. We put it into the gospel. Man, we preached the gospel with it. Now, I'm not saying there's nothing wrong with passing the place. I'm not saying anything except to say that we've been using the wrong motivation in our giving. Don't get so hung up that you become an overreaction to all of these other things. That's not what I'm talking about. But I'm saying that that's an example, see, of law and grace. We've been motivated through law. And how many of you have ever gotten sick just listening to another offering? Quite a few of us. And it's because it grates on your spirit. It's contrary to it. And you don't like that. Well, I tell you, we ought to get to walking in the New Covenant instead of in the Old Covenant. I said all of that got off on tithing. Anyway, if you've got any more questions, get my tape on tithing. We had not looked up the Scripture yet. You all got your Bible? Amen. <laughs> let's look over here in Hebrews chapter 10. Or let's look in, in, in Hebrews chapter 9 first. This, is, this will be a little bit of a summary of all the things we've been talking about this week. Hebrews chapter 9. Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service in a worldly sanctuary. That's Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. For there was a tabernacle made, the first, wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, and after the second veil the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant, and over it the cherubs of glory shadowing the mercy seat of which we cannot now speak particularly. This is talking about that all of the Old Testament things, especially he's singling up right now on the Old Testament tabernacle, which was divided into, you know, two compartments inside the tent and then uh, the outer court where the brazen altar, etc. was. And he's saying that all of those pieces of furniture in there were symbolic of some New Testament reality, and he's already dealt with this in the book of Hebrews. Now he's beginning to sum up and show you kind of what all of this was pointing toward. But there's one thing I want to show you in here before we go on. In verse 5, it says that over the table, uh, I mean the uh, tables of the covenant, it says over it the cherubs of glory shadowing the mercy seat, and this mercy seat was the place in heaven. There's a mercy seat in heaven right before the throne of God, and this is where people were come to plead mercy before God, and it's where God dispensed mercy. In other words, it's where we came to God. It's, it's the avenue that God gave us to approach unto him, and it says, over it, shadowing the cherubs, cherubims of glory, shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now, everything else in the tabernacle he's, he was using as an example and comparing it with New Testament realities, but when he came to these cherubims, shadowing the mercy seat, he says, we can't speak of them now, particularly. Why not? Why don't the cherubims sitting over the mercy seat have a New Testament counterpart? 
Again, if we'd use our head when you read, it would help you tremendously. If you go back and look at the first time cherubims are mentioned in the Bible, the first time a cherubim was mentioned was when one was placed at the east end of the Garden of Eden with a flaming sword in his hand to protect the way of the tree of life. Cherubims are mentioned again in Ezekiel, or whether it's mentioned again in other places, but in Ezekiel chapter 1, and if you compare it with Ezekiel chapter 10, Ezekiel chapter 10 calls those uh, beasts that had the four heads and that had the wheel within a wheel and that were above the ground, it calls those cherubims in Ezekiel chapter 10. And so we see that a cherubim was not a naked little baby going around like the way that we always have them pictured. But rather, a cherubim was a strong, angelic being that was a warrior, and it was used for protection. It was used to display the power of God. Cherubims were over the mercy seat in the Old Testament because in the Old Testament, anybody other than the high priest going in one time a year was automatically struck dead. You find in the Old Testament a man named Uzer, Uzer, however you pronounce his name, that they were carrying the Ark of the Covenant one time on a cart, and the oxen stumbled, and the cart began to fall, and he put up his hand to steady it, and God struck him dead. I mean, boy, you just couldn't approach to the mercy seat of God because in the Old Testament, the mercy of God wasn't revealed. And that's the reason that he says in the New Covenant, we can't now speak of the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat because now in heaven there isn't anything. They're protecting us and keeping us away from the mercy of God, but rather it's been opened up to us and nothing is there to restrain you. We have a way into the very presence of God and God no longer is protecting it but inviting people to it. Well, that's a tremendous truth. That may not turn some of you on, but I tell you, if you could just get into the Old Testament and some of the symbolism in it and see the desperation and the hopelessness that was in it and then see in the New Testament the very thing that kept people away is now removed and you have total access to God the Father, boy, it'd encourage you, it'd bless you. We have direct access to God. I don't care how good or how bad I've been. How bad I've been, I can come boldly before the throne of grace that I may obtain mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Not when I'm just doing everything right, not when I've walked perfectly, but even when I've blown it, even when I'm sorry, no count, no good, I have a covenant with God and I can approach directly before the mercy seat and God doesn't have anything there to rebuke me or to keep me back from it. Well, that's tremendous. That's tremendous. So in verse 6, he says, Now when these things were thus ordained, the priest went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the heirs of the people. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. And all this is simply saying is the Old Testament... The way the tabernacle was set up with that veil of the temple there, that was Jesus' flesh. And when Jesus died, the, his flesh was broken for us and the veil of the temple was rent in twain. All of these things were symbolizing that there was still no direct access to God. You could get close. You could get into the first tabernacle, but you couldn't get into the Holy of Holies because you could not enter into direct relationship with God. It had to be through all these intermediaries and through all of the ordinances and the observances. But in the New Testament, man, we don't have to have a high priest. We now have Jesus as our high priest, and we can enter right through him, right into the very presence of God. You know, New Testament Christians aren't enjoying their own benefits of their priesthood. We aren't recognizing our forgiveness. He's saying that the Old Testament, the way the tabernacle was set up, was to show you that the Old Testament law didn't make anything perfect. It was still separation from God, closer than you were before, but still separated from God. 
Verse 9, which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. Boy, this is fine. I wish I had time to teach on this, but the conscience is, the law made a conscience revived. You know, the scripture talks about that you can sear your conscience with a hot iron. You can have your conscience hardened toward the things of God to where a person can actually begin to excuse their actions and not realize how bad they are. You find a person that's in deception and they're out there and they don't even seem to have any twinge of conviction over the sin that they're living in. The number one thing to do is to minister mercy and forgiveness to them. But if they don't accept it, did you know what you can do to get them back to their senses? And the Old Testament law will bring a person's conscience back just like that. The Old Testament law, the, your conscience was originally programmed to understand a right and wrong standard of what's proper. And you can deceive it. You can have an impure conscience. You can have a seared conscience. The Bible does talk about that it can be defiled. You can have a defiled conscience, but I guarantee you the Word of God, especially the Old Testament law, will bring it back to itself just like that, and it'll bring conviction to a person in short order. And we dealt with that out of 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 5 through 9 the other night. But the Old Testament couldn't make anybody perfect in their conscience, and your conscience is a part of you that produces guilt, condemnation, etc., Verse 10, which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. The Christ being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once. Boy, get this, this is powerful. He entered in once into the holy place having obtained eternal redemption for us. Man, that verse, if we understood that one verse right there, I guarantee you it would destroy a tremendous amount of Satan's problems in your life. One time he entered in, the high priest had to go in over and over and over, but one time for all, Jesus went in, made one sacrifice for your sins forever, and obtained eternal redemption. He didn't just obtain redemption up until the time you confessed your sins, and then if you blow it after that, you've got to confess them again, and it's got to be reapplied, and there's got to be a new atonement made or any of these kind of things. He obtained eternal redemption for you, past, present, and even future tense sins when you got born again. How can God provide future tense remission of sins? Well, you better hope that he can because he died nearly 2,000 years ago and hadn't died since then. And if you didn't get your sins forgiven before you committed them, then you didn't get any sins forgiven. I don't know how God does it, but he comes by it honest, amen. God was able to forgive your sins before you committed them. He obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh... How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Did you know one of the benefits of the new covenant is that your conscience should be purged? You should not have a guilt consciousness, a sin consciousness. And the reason that we can be out from under that is because we don't have to live under the law. We don't have to be constantly examining our sin. And the way that we come unto God isn't by beating ourselves down and recognizing our sin, but rather it's by putting our attention upon the Savior. And as we behold him, we'll become like him. 2 Corinthians 3.18 As you behold with open faith the glory of the Lord, you also are changed into the same image. As we put our attention on the Lord, as a man thinks in his heart, so will he be. If you get your attention stayed on Jesus, you're going to begin to be like Jesus. 
See, most of us, brother, this scares me. If you say that I don't have to any longer be sin conscious and always be critiquing myself and grading myself and finding out whether I'm walking right and doing all of this, that scares me. What's going to restrain me from living in sin? Love. Instead of fear. See, we become so conditioned to fear that we're afraid of not being in fear. Did you know I commit all the adultery I want to commit? I just don't want to commit adultery because I love my wife. There's two ways to approach a person, you know, that's tempted at adultery. You can bring out the law and you can preach to them that God's going to get you, man, the wrath of God will come on you and you can beat them with the word of God and you may scare adultery out of them. You may keep that person from committing adultery outwardly. You can't deal with the inside. You can't purge him of the lust and the desire. Or another way is to minister to him and get that man to really love his wife. And if a man loves his wife, he won't commit adultery. If a man really loves his wife, he's not going to be tempted to love somebody else because, man, he has made a commitment to her. And I guarantee you, I am not even tempted to commit adultery on my wife because I love my wife. There's no problem. If, you, if the only thing that's holding you in and keeping you faithful is fear, well, then that's better than going out and just living in adultery. That's better than not serving God at all. But you're tormented. You aren't enjoying it. You're missing out on a good relationship. You're living inferior to what I'm walking under. I can guarantee you that. Somebody says, man, it just seems tough to me to be able to keep yourself pure. Well, it's, it'd be tough to me to go any other route. Man, the guilt, the condemnation, the stuff that goes along with it, I guarantee you, it's easier to serve God than it is to serve the devil. It's hard serving the devil. The devil is a sorry taskmaster. I guarantee you, it's easy to serve God. It makes you feel good. You have peace and love and joy and all of these things. Amen? See, the scripture says that you can have your conscience purged. So that you don't even have to be aware of sin. And that's not going to free you to sin. It'll free you from sin. Going down to verse 25. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must he, have, must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself as it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this the judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Now see, he was talking to the Jews who were constantly making sacrifices for sin. There was a daily morning and evening sacrifice. There was a sacrifice for each new moon. There was a sacrifice at all of the feasts. And there was a sacrifice every time you committed a sin or you had some special thing that you'd done that you wanted to be atoned for, you had to come and offer up peace offerings and wave offerings and all of these other things. It was just a constant lifetime of sacrifices. It was constantly recognizing, God, I'm not worthy. God, I'm not worthy. Here's a sacrifice to atone. God, I'm not worthy. It's just constantly recognizing your unworthiness, just like most Christians living today. But the scripture is saying that Jesus entered in and offered one sacrifice for sins forever, and that did it. And under the new covenant, you shouldn't constantly be bringing all of your sins up before God. We feel like we have to because if I don't mention them, if I don't confess them, they won't be forgiven. That's not so. What happens if you forget to confess one? What's that going to do to you? Are you willing to base your eternal redemption on whether you have caught every sin 
that you've ever done and confessed it properly and truly repented over it. And if there's one that you haven't dealt with, it's going to keep you from entering into the presence of God. Are you, will, are you willing to live like that? Boy, that's a responsibility that nobody has ever fulfilled. I guarantee you, there's nobody that has been perfect and has always repented every time they had to. And I guarantee you, if you go to thinking that way, you're putting a yoke upon your neck that nobody can bear. Your sins have been dealt with through the one offering of Jesus forever. Verse 1 of chapter 10, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? That's a question with a question mark after it. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? The answer is yes. If the people could have been really cleansed, not ceremonial cleansed, but if there could have been an actual purging take place through the Old Testament sacrifices, wouldn't they have quit offering sacrifices? And the answer to that is yes. But under the Old Testament, it couldn't happen. But under the New Testament, we have a perfect sacrifice, the Lord Jesus, and the answer is yes. We should cease to offer sacrifices. Because that the worshipers, once purged, should have had no more conscience of sins. Did you know if you could find a perfect sacrifice, which we do have the perfect sacrifice of Jesus, and if it could really purge you from your sins, then the scripture is saying that the result should be that you should have no more conscience of sins. No more sin consciousness. If you'd be honest, I don't expect you to raise your hand, but if you'd be honest, and if I asked you how many of you are really sin conscious, if you understood what I was saying, I don't believe there'd be a hand in here that wasn't raised. All of us are sin conscious. Some to more degrees than others. But we don't have complete boldness with God. How do you think Jesus is approaching the Father? Can you picture how Jesus petitions the Father for something? The Bible says in Philippians 2, arm yourselves, or it says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. First Peter, 2 Peter chapter 4, verse 1 says, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind that Jesus has. And in the context, he's saying he did all of this for you, he died for you, so receive the benefit of it and get the same mind toward God that Jesus has. Do you think Jesus is feeling inferior, guilty, condemned? You can have the same mind towards God that Jesus has. You can expect to get the same results from God that Jesus gets if you approach him in the name of Jesus. Did you know that's the reason we say in the name of Jesus? Most people think, well, in the name of Jesus means your prayer's over. In the name of Jesus, Amen. People don't really know what in the name of Jesus means, but it's saying, Father, not because of who I am, but because of who Jesus is. If you really put faith in the name of Jesus, then you should expect to have the same reaction from the Father that Jesus gets because you didn't ask in your own righteousness and holiness, but in, but in the name of Jesus. Most of us haven't understood that. We pray prayers like, oh God, I'm so unworthy to come before you. God, I don't deserve anything. I've failed you. I haven't lived up to what you told me to do. God, I ask your forgiveness. I'm so sorry. Give it to me. I'm going to start being better. I'm going to fast. I'm going to pray. I'm going to study the word. I'll go to church. I'll pay my tithes. I'll do all of these things. Give it to me in the name of Jesus. Amen. You no more asked in the name of Jesus based on what he did. Your whole prayer was about yourself and how sorry you were and how you're going to change. It was all self. God, I'll do this. I'll do this. I'll do this. Now, in the name of Jesus, give it to me. You know, that's taking the name of Jesus in vain. 
Taking the name of Jesus in vain is not using it properly, not using it with proper understanding. And we take the name of God in vain all of the time when we end our prayer within the name of Jesus, but yet still are really looking to what we're doing instead of to what Jesus is doing is the basis of receiving. So we should have no more conscience of sin. We should have the same attitude that Jesus had. Some people think, I can't believe that. I can't receive that. Jesus isn't sinning anymore. I am. You aren't sinning in your spirit. Your spirit is righteous and holy, and the Bible says in Ephesians 4.20, or excuse me, in uh, John 4.24, that God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. When you come before God, God doesn't take your flesh and fellowship with you in the flesh. You don't feel with your physical senses, God. You don't feel your emotions, God. Now, your emotions can be influenced by God, but that's not the part of you that God's communing with directly. God deals with your spirit, and in your spirit you are righteous and truly holy. You are pure. There is no sin. There is no impurity in you, and God looks at you and sees you 100% pure. No sin. No corruption in your spirit. As he is, so are you, is what it says in 1 John 4.17. Your spirit is 100% pure. And so when the scripture says you should have no more conscience of sin, that's because you should be walking in your spirit, man. You should be seeing yourself the way that God sees you. You should be looking on the spirit, not on the outward appearance. Instead of looking in the mirror and saying, boy, you don't look holy. I saw what you did today. Instead of going by your feelings and saying, you don't feel holy, you ought to go by what the word says about your spirit and stand on that and approach God in spirit and in truth. You can't approach God without any rebuke, without any fear of sin whatsoever because in your spirit, the part of you that God communes with, you are pure, sinless. As Jesus is, so are you in this world. 1 Corinthians six seventeen: He that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. You have become one with the Lord and you are exactly as he is. Man, that's powerful. I don't know how y'all can sit there. <laughs> That's powerful. That's powerful. We have become as Jesus is. I guarantee you, if you're discouraged tonight, you aren't thinking that you are as Jesus is. You aren't thinking on these good things that are on the inside of you. If you're discouraged, you're looking at the natural circumstances or you're looking at your failure and your sin. You're looking at something other than Jesus because in, in his presence is fullness of joy. If you look at him, you're going to rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. I don't care if they got the gun to your head and the bank has come to repossess everything you've got. Man, if you had your mind stayed on Jesus and who you are in Christ Jesus, you'd shout all the way to jail, amen. You'd just rejoice and praise God. You'd be just like Paul and Silas in the midst of the night. They were thrown in jail. Everything was wrong, but they had their mind stayed on Jesus, on his love for them, and they just broke out in song at midnight. They weren't doing it to get God to do something. I don't think that they knew anything was coming. They didn't know it was going to cause an earthquake. They were praising him because in their heart they really loved him. And man, they knew who they were and they knew what they had. And they just couldn't help but sing and praise God. We sometimes will get real holy and start operating in praise because we've heard somebody talk about that praise is strength to steal the enemy and the avenger. And it is. So we'll use it as a weapon, but you know, there's very few times that praise really comes out because we have a genuine revelation of who we are in Christ Jesus, and we just are rejoicing in it. Seems like we're always trying to use it to get something. Always get something. Always accomplish something. Man, you ought to be able to rejoice just because you're happy. Amen? 
You know, I'm never going to get through. I hadn't even got to the scripture I was headed for tonight. Well, this is good, though. I'm going to say some things real quickly here. I, it won't be real, real quick, but I'm not going to say it as, I'm not going to say it as long as I was going to say it, and I, you're going to have to get some tapes. I've got a tape entitled The Security of the Believer. It will explain some of these things, and I'm going to leave some things unsaid, and I'm sorry I'd have to keep you here another hour and a half to explain this properly, and so I'm not going to do that. So I, you're just going to have to read between the lines. You're going to ha if this doesn't fit your theology, don't totally reject it. Take the scriptures, go home and look them up. Listen to the tape because I guarantee you it's true according to the word of God. When Jesus forgave your sins, he forgave your sins, past, present, and even future tense sins. That's the reason one sacrifice could forgive you forever. Jesus doesn't have to make more sacrifices. Once you got born again, Jesus didn't have to come along and die for you the next time you sin and to reapply the blood. He doesn't even have to take that one atonement that he's made and reapply it every time that you sin. Through that one offering, you were forgiven forever. Somebody says, well, then why does the scripture say in 1 John 1, 9 that we, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness? Well, let me ask you this first. Do you think that that means that if you don't confess a sin that it won't be forgiven? If that's what you're saying again, see, what happens if you miss a sin? Somewhere throughout your entire Christian walk with the Lord and if you don't really confess a sin. If that causes you to lose your salvation, I hadn't got time to go into this and explain it, but if you lose your salvation, Hebrews chapter 6 makes it very clear it's impossible to ever be born again. There is no such thing as being born again again. You get born again one time, and if you blow it after that, it's over. There is no repentance. You become total reprobate. If you forget a sin, and if you feel that that cuts you off and severs you from the presence of God, then that means that I can guarantee you you're going to be reprobate and you won't make it to heaven. If I really believe that the moment you got born again, I'd knock you in the head and kill you. I might go to hell for it, but that's the only way you'd ever make it to heaven is for me just to kill you when you get born again and not give you an opportunity to do something and not confess it. So what does 1 John 1, 9 say? I believe that what it's talking about, and I could go into a lot more detail on this, but your spirit is saved, perfected forever. We're going to deal with some scriptures in just a minute. It'll say that over here in Hebrews chapter uh, 13. It says that we are, Hebrews chapter 12, rather, in verse 23, it says, We have come to the general assembly and church of the firstborn which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just man made perfect. It was your spirit that was made perfect. Your spirit's the part of you that's saved. Your spirit is pure. Your spirit is a part of you that doesn't sin. And your spirit is a part of you that was forgiven of sins, past, present, and future. Your physical body, when you commit a sin, you commit a sin with your physical body or in your soulish emotional realm, not with your spirit. Your spirit doesn't sin. Your spirit never loses its right standing with God. It doesn't fluctuate according to your holiness. Holiness is a static thing with God. It's a constant. It does not increase. Now, holiness out here in your physical realm increases. You get to where you live more and more holy. You're changed more and more into his image as you renew your mind. But in your spirit, your spirit, the moment you got born again, was as holy as it'll ever get. It was holy. It was righteous and pure. Ephesians 4.24 says, Put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Your spirit is truly holy. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that Jesus became sin for us who knew no sin so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 
You've been made the righteousness of God, not a little bit of righteousness from God, but you have literally become the righteousness of God in your spirit. There is no sin in your spirit. Your spirit does not get contaminated, and your spirit doesn't have to have everything confessed and re-cleansed every time you sin. But your flesh, your soul, and your body do become contaminated by sin. And there are scriptures that talk about that. Yield not your members as instruments unto sin. You can sin with your body. That's the reason that your body can still become sick, which is a result of sin because the flesh realm is still influenced by sin. And so what do you do when you yield yourself to sin and you give Satan legal rights to come into your physical body and begin to afflict you and hinder you and bring mental torment and sickness to your body? What do you do? You confess it. Say, Father, I'm sorry. I confess my sin and ask your forgiveness. Not forgiveness in the spirit realm, not eternal forgiveness with God, but rather talking about this physical body. You're still a physical body, and you can't just divorce yourself and walk totally in the spirit. You've got to drag this physical body along with you until you die. All right? And so you've got to keep that body clean. So how do you do it? You confess it, ask the forgiveness. It's not forgiveness for your spirit, but rather it's cleansing out here in the physical realm. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This cleansing, this purity that's in your spirit comes flowing out of you and it rids Satan's rights and privileges to operate in your body because you've confessed it, you've forsaken it, and that gave God rights in your body. Romans chapter 6, verse 16 says, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. If I commit sin, I yield my physical body and my emotional realm to Satan. And Satan has legal rights to come in and afflict me. But if I turn around and repent and turn from Satan and yield myself to God, then I become a servant to God and God's provisions and blessings start coming over me. So that's the reason I confess my sin and repent of it. Not so that I can be eternally saved, not so that I can change in my spirit, man, my right standing with God, but so that I can get the place that I gave Satan in my physical body. I can get him off of my back, and I can walk free from that. I'm not going to have him rip me off. Amen? God forgave you of sin, past, present, and even future tense sin. Look here in, in Hebrews chapter 10. And boy, I wish I had time to go into this. I'm just going to have to skip it. We're going to pick up with verse 10. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You could take that once for all as saying one time for all mankind. But the very emphasis on the word once also means that it was not just uh, it doesn't have to be repeated, but it was only one time. Whether that means once for all time or once for all mankind, it's the same point. It was only made one time. You were sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, the word sanctified has become a religious word that some people make doctrines out of and say all kinds of things. Sanctified literally means set apart. And we were set apart from our old nature, from our old man. We are set apart from the sin. Our spirit has been sanctified. Your physical body is in the process of being sanctified, but your spirit is already as sanctified as it'll ever get. It's as holy and pure as it will be throughout all eternity. You've got the exact same spirit right now that you'll have forever throughout all eternity if you made Jesus Christ your Lord. Man, that's powerful. That is powerful. So we've been sanctified by the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, now that 
makes it clear that it wasn't just for all mankind, but one sacrifice for your sins forever. He offered that sacrifice one time. He's never going to offer it again. If you, not confessing it, would defile your spirit, man, then there would be no such thing as redemption. I guarantee you, your sins were forgiven past, present, and future when you confessed Jesus as your Lord. He, he made that one sacrifice for sins forever. He sat down on the right hand of God. That means no longer is he working and making an atonement for sin and things like this. He's already made the atonement, and that part of his ministry is over with. From henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Who are sanctified? The ones in verse 10 that accepted the atonement of the Lord Jesus. When you got born again, you became sanctified. And according to verse 14, you became perfected forever. Hebrews 12:23 says, We've come unto the general assembly and church of the firstborn into the spirits of just man made perfect. Your spirit is perfect. Your spirit is holy, and it's holy and pure forever. It is never going to be changed. God sees you righteous, holy, and pure. Your physical body gets contaminated, so therefore we do need to confess sin. We need to forsake it. We need to get into the Word because it changes our mind. It renews our mind. We need to come to church so that we can hear the Word of God and get set free. But I want you to know in your spirit you're righteous and holy and pure, and nothing can change that. Oh, that's powerful. That is powerful. And if you really believe that, you know what that'll do? All of a sudden, you'll recognize, I can fellowship with God because I'm a new creature. My spirit is as holy and pure as God himself. There is no inadequacy, no failure in my spirit. When you blow it, you can come boldly right in before God. Say, God, I blew it. Praise God for who I am in Christ Jesus. Man, I praise God that in my spirit I'm righteous and holy and pure. God, I blew it again. Forgive me. Cleanse me of this thing in my flesh realm so that Satan won't use this to steal from me and kill from me. But praise God that I know that this didn't separate me from you, that it didn't hurt your feelings because he's already dealt with that sin. You know, my sister has a daughter that was very rebellious, and my sister's spirit filled. She prayed for a lady that died in her car one time. This lady was raised from the dead. My sister seen the power of God operate in her life. And anyway, my sister got mad at her one night, was fixing supper for my uh, brother-in-law, and he was bringing home a professor from the university, and she got mad and hauled off and hit her daughter and knocked her right on the ground. My sister knew better. She shouldn't have done it. She simply got into the flesh. She ran upstairs when that happened, closed the door, got in her bedroom, and she says, God help. She says, if I start crying, I'm going to be totally out of it until tomorrow morning. I've got to fix supper. I've got to pull myself together. And she says, God, speak something to me that's going to help me. And the Lord just spoke to her, and he says, Joyce, this really upsets you, and you think that it's something that, it, you know, it just now hit me, and it's, it's offended me, it's hurt me, and there's got to be a healing of our relationship. But he said, I want you to know that when you were eight years old and you confessed me as your Lord, I already saw that this was coming and I've already forgiven it. I've already dealt with it. It won't affect me. He says, you can just walk in freedom. And did you know when she saw that, that didn't make her want to go down and hit her daughter again. But it did mean that the dominion of sin was broken over because God had already dealt with the sin before she had ever confessed it. She was forgiven. So she confessed it, received the forgiveness, went down and asked her daughter to forgive her and was able to go back rejoicing, praising God 
because she had already been forgiven. She simply understood forgiveness, that it didn't change her standing with God. You know the reason some of you bellyache and bawl and squall and crawl through the dirt for three and four weeks? It's penance. I, I knew a man came to one of my meetings in Arlington, Texas and showed me scars on his palm of his hands, on his elbows, and on his knees from where he had carried across three miles over broken glass doing penance to the Virgin Mary so that he could be forgiven. We think, barbaric. How dare anybody do something like that? Well, what's the difference between that and you doing penance for three weeks, going around feeling depressed and discouraged at all? I couldn't expect God to love me. I can't rejoice because of what I've done. In a sense, you're doing penance. You're suffering because you feel that, man, something, you just can't commit sin without suffering. People have criticized me for what I'm saying and saying, you're making a mockery of sin. You're saying you can just go live in sin, and sin doesn't cost you anything. This preacher that I grew up, I mean, I didn't grow up, but I was in this church in, during my teenage years and stuff. He used to stand up on this part of the pulpit right here, put his feet on this part of the pulpit and reach over and grab the mic, and he'd preach until sweat ran out of his shoes. And he would he'd preach and hit the pulpit. He broke every pulpit he ever had, and he'd preach and say, Sin's got to be judged. Sin's got to be judged. That's his favorite saying. And he'd get on your case, man, if you sin, it's going to be judged. If you don't pay your tithes, God's going to take it out in doctor bills. What he meant was, you may hold back your 10%, but I guarantee you God will put you in the hospital flat of your back and take it from you if you don't give it to him. Sin's got to be judged. And man, he had me so that I knew sin's got to be judged. And when the Lord started showing me this stuff, I thought to myself, but God, what about sin? Sin's got to be judged. <laughs> and the Lord spoke to him and he said, sin has been judged in the flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, there's no reason that you have to get judged for it too. Man, I'm free. Sin has been judged. I'm not making light of sin. I'm exalting what Jesus did and saying his sacrifice was so perfect, so holy, and so pure that I guarantee you his sacrifice broke the dominion of sin. Somebody, a lot of people actually believe that sin's stronger than what Jesus did. It takes what Jesus did plus all of your repenting and bawling and squalling and everything you can add to it to be able to overcome the sin in your life. But I want you to know that Jesus broke sin in my life and I'm righteous and pure before God tonight. Amen. Regardless of what you think about me. You may not think I look good, even though I'm wearing a nice suit, amen. <laughs> Isn't this good? First time I've ministered, other, one other time in my life I've ministered with anything but my boots. I feel half naked. <laughs> Brother, this is a real sacrifice for me. You may not like the way I look, you may not like the way I talk, but I guarantee you God sees me in the Spirit and he knows my heart and God loves me and he sees me righteous and pure and I am without blame before God. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus and so are you. And if you really believe that, if you really believe that, how could you be depressed? How could you be discouraged? How could you be beat down? How could you be embarrassed? How could you be afraid of the devil? Man, if you really believe that, you'll become stronger than horseradish. Amen? I guarantee you, you'll get strong in the Lord when you... That's what makes everything else work. And this has been hidden from us, and we've been going around looking at ourselves because of a lack of understanding about the old covenant law. We've been sin conscious. We have not had our conscience purged from dead works to serve a living God. We've been dragging our old sin nature and all of our mistakes and junk around with us. And Satan has been having a heyday because of it. The only reason Satan could ever hurt you is because you sinned. He had no right or access to you except through sin. And if you understand that through Jesus, 
sin has been bro broken over you, I guarantee you Satan's access into your life will see. Not because of your holiness. Now, as you begin to act holy, you'll even give him less and less inroads. But even when you blow it and commit sin, you'll be quick to turn to the Lord and say, Father, I thank you I'm already forgiven, and now I don't want this sin to allow Satan place in my life. So I turn from it, I confess it, I repent, and you'll keep Satan at bay through that, and sin won't have dominion over you. Romans 6.14 says, Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Turn that verse around and say it this way. If you are under the law and not under grace, sin will have dominion over you. Have you been dominated by sin? Has sin been beating you down? Have you been depressed and discouraged and felt separated from God? It's because you're operating under law and not under grace. You operate under grace and sin will not have dominion over you because you are not under the law but under grace. Are you laboring under sin? Is sin dominating you? You're under the law. Are you depressed and guilty and condemned? You're under the law. Either you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord, and of course you're under the law, and you're headed straight for hell and you need a Savior, or if you've confessed Jesus as your Lord, Satan has deceived you and put you back under the law, and it's like being fallen from grace. Christ has become of none effect unto you because you aren't standing strong in the liberty wherewith he's made you free. Rather, you're standing in your own righteousness instead of in his righteousness. You're standing in the flesh rather than in the spirit. So you've got to go back to standing in the Spirit. You've got to go back to seeing who you are in Christ Jesus and recognize that, man, that Spirit has been pure. It has been made righteous and holy. It is sanctified and perfected forever by the one offering of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, that's powerful. And it's so much easier to say than it is to do. Because I guarantee you, your whole mental thinking, the way you've been educated, is exactly opposite what I've taught tonight. Your spirit has, if you've listened, your spirit has risen up on the inside of you. You're experiencing a glimmer of hope. You're experiencing a freedom, a joy that some of you didn't have before. But I can promise you this, it'll be gone by the time you get home unless you commit yourself to it unless you ask God to hide this in your heart and unless you go home and begin to start pouring into this yourself, you'll lose it. The whole world is going a different way and you've got to be reminded of things. You've got to meditate on it and go over and over and over it before it comes a part of you. And in my estimation, this is one of the most powerful things that you'll ever hear. It's a basic of your salvation and it is not being said very often. And I guarantee you, you are going to have to latch on to it like a dog with a bone and not let go of it to be able to retain it. But if you'll do it, God wants you to know this more than you want to know it. God will remind you of it. God will bring things back to your remembrance, according to John 14, 26. And you can retain it, but it just takes commitment. It takes commitment. And boy, it'll change your life. I had so much more to share, and I'm simply out of time tonight. But if you've received what I've talked about, I guarantee you, it'll make a difference in your life.